Um, how many have read uh, C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity before? Okay, uh, good number of you. Uh, there's a section in here that, um, that I'd like to read to you. Um, we talked last time about um, this whole super foundational point of Christianity that God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, if you haven't been with us or if it's been a long week and last Sunday is a little fuzzy to you, if you flip back to Philippians chapter 2, we're in a section um, that theologians call the kenosis passage, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. Uh, That comes from one of the words that's used in the text here where Paul uh, instructs the Philippians along these lines in chapter 2, verse 5, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Uh, And that's the section where we find ourselves in today. And we're going to review last time um, and then uh, apply some of the things we talked about last time as we're sort of working our way into dealing with the text here. Lots of background to cover. But listen to Lewis as he brings together, in a way that probably only C.S. Lewis can do, the, the dilemma of the human condition and the necessity of God becoming a man. That's kind of what he's addressing here. Why does... Why does God have to become a man in his chapter titled The Perfect Penitent? Listen to to Lewis. But the same... Let's see. um, He starts off talking about repentance here. He says, Repentance is a willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death. It's not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he he chose, it is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking him to let you back without going back. It cannot happen. Very well, then, we must go through it. But the same badness, now listen to this, the same badness which makes us need it, meaning repentance, uh, let's see, The same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. Can we do it if God helps us? Yes, but what do we mean when we talk of God helping us? We mean God putting into us a bit of himself, so to speak. He lends us a little of his reasoning powers, and that is how we think. He puts a little of his love into us, and that is how we love one another. When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand while it forms the letters. That is, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hand while we do it. Now, if we had not fallen, that would be all plain sailing. But unfortunately, listen to this, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does at all, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, and to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all so that the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God, in his own nature, has never walked. 
God can share only what he has, and this thing in his own nature he has not. Now, this next section I remember reading for the first time like it was yesterday. But supposing God became a man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was a man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can do it only if he becomes a man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying, just as our thinking can can succeed only because it is a drop out of the ocean of his own intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies, and he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. Does that make sense? Some of you it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Why does God have to become a man? Because in order for God, using, using Lewis's words, to help us with the ultimate dilemma, our, our badness, our fallenness, as he calls it, God has to, in a sense, he, he has to become a man to be able to be our substitute, to suffer, to die, to be in our place, and to provide a perfect sacrifice in order to do that. Um, and that, 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 that section has always struck with me as so helpful in understanding why the incarnation and the kenosis and the hypostatic union and all those $100 theological words we used last time, why all those things have to happen. Now, uh, we looked at some texts last time, and we're not going to review all of those, but I do want to remind you of a couple of definitions just so that uh, you can remember where we're at. Um, what Philippians 2 is describing is what theologians call the hypostatic union, and uh, I'm not just throwing it up there so, so you can impress your friends at lunch today, but this is terminology that you're likely to read in Christian literature. And it's very important that you know what the terminology means and, and where it comes from. But, but that, that term just means the union of Christ's divinity with humanity in one person. So God, is, as I teach my kids, is 100% God and 100% man. I'm sorry, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time in one person. That's what the God-man is. That's what the second person of the Trinity is. He is all God and all man in one person at the same time. And uh, we talked about the Council of Chalcedon, 14, uh, 451 A.D., one of the many church councils that took place in the first uh, four centuries of the church's existence. And it was in that council that uh, uh, some of the church fathers gathered to discuss how to think about the nature of Christ and, and how, to, how to come up with a description and a definition that would preserve orthodoxy and would guard against heresy. And uh, as you know, many of the church councils in those days, as, as Christianity spread, I mean, they, don't have, they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't obviously have email communications, any sort of electronic way. They were writing things out by hand, sending them by boats or uh, other, other means of travel so that it would uh, slowly go over the, uh, spread over the continent. 
And, um, and as a result of that, there were lots of people that would hear little things here and there, lots of oral tradition, and occasionally people would get things wrong. So the need to establish an orthodox position on the nature of Christ necessitated this council. And uh, it was there that they, they came up with um, the definition that I gave you last time. These are not in your notes today, but let, let, me, just, let me just read you the um, sort, sort of the, the part of, of the council's statement that gets quoted often. And if you were raised in a liturgical church like I was, where you recited the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or some other creed, you probably recognize some of the language uh, that comes from this council's document. It says, um, let's pick it up right in the middle there. Uh, Jesus is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now here's the description here. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, or that's uh, another uh, name for person, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what are they saying? We, we talked about this last time. In the beginning was the what? Okay, so here's Jesus. And in the beginning he is the Word, according to John 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You've, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, enjoying fellowship with one another for all of eternity. Long before the world began, long before He created the heavens and the earth, long before people were created, God in three persons existed and always will exist. Okay, that, that's the doctrine of the eternality of God. He's always been around. Okay, think about that. He's always been around. He was not created. He had no beginning. But there was a point in history, there was a point in time that this thing called the incarnation happens, or uh, more specifically, the kenosis happens. So Jesus, who is 100% God, always has been, always will be, in this thing called the kenosis, Okay, and, and for now, just, just learn a new word. Okay, just learn the word with me. It's called kenosis, and I'll explain what it means here in a minute. Kenosis is an event where God, or excuse me, where Jesus takes on a human nature. Okay, so now here's Jesus, the God-man, if we might call him that, who is 100% God, he's 100% deity, he's 100% humanity in one person. Okay? There was a time, there was a time that Jesus the Son was not 100% humanity. He was just God. And then as God orchestrates his plan in history, as he brings about uh, the salvation of people and he puts into place uh, this plan that he's had from all of eternity to save humanity from sin, what Philippians 2 is describing where it says he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, that is describing this event known as the kenosis where God uh, God the Son adds a second nature. He adds humanity to his deity in one person so that he forever becomes the God-man. Why did he do that? Well, Lewis answers that question for us, right? 
He has to be a man to suffer and die. As Romans 5 said, the text I read for you earlier, Jesus is the second Adam. He is coming to do what Adam should have done. He is coming to fix what Adam initiated and started. He is coming to live the life that you and I should have lived. He is coming to die the death that you and I should have died. He is coming to pay the penalty for sin, which we deserve for all of eternity. But in order to do that, as Lewis says, if God's going to help us, if he's going to suffer and die, if he's going to live a perfect life of righteousness, he's got to become a man. And yet not cease to be God because only God can do it perfectly. Do you see that? So Jesus in one person is 100% God, 100% man at the same time. That's the doctrine of the kenosis. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Talk about that next week. We're, we're, we're setting the table. You know, we're putting the deck chairs up, and then we'll go out and have our party here in a little bit. But um, yes, that's that's what we're doing now. We'll talk about that next time. Okay, so Chalcedon did that, uh, established that, and and just just so you know. This, from the 5th century, established the orthodox or correct position on how to think about the person of Christ for all of history. Um, this, this is what all Protestants affirm. This is what all Catholics affirm. Um, people that don't believe this are labeled historically as those who are heretical or heretics. And you understand, heretic is not a put-down. It's not, it's, not it's not a mean word to call somebody. Heretic is describing somebody who has deviated from orthodoxy. They've deviated from the historic biblical position on some particular doctrine. Now, more recently, uh, Dr. Paul Enns, Terry's dad, um, has said this. And I think this is a little bit easier to understand than, than Chalcedon because it's you know, almost a thousand years, uh, or not, not a thousand years, uh, several hundred years uh, later. Two, the two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. He remains forever the God-man, fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. Though Christ sometimes operated in the sphere of his humanity, and in other cases in the sphere of his deity, in all cases what he did and what he was could be attributed to his one person. Even though it is evident that there were two natures in Christ, he is never considered a dual personality. This is not the the split personality savior. That's not how we understand it. In summarizing the hypostatic union, three facts are noted. And and I think this is very, very helpful. If you didn't write this down last week, or I guess you had it in your definition. If you weren't here last week, here's the cliff notes, sort of bullet point way to think about it. What do we mean when we say hypostatic union? Number one, Christ has two distinct natures, humanity and deity. Two, there's no mixture or intermingling of the two natures. They're separate, but in one person. And three, although he has two natures, he is one person. Okay? Welcome to Theology 101. Christology 101. Okay? Now, why is all that important? Because if you don't understand the person of Christ, you will not understand the work of Christ. If you don't understand the work of Christ, you don't understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you can't be, you ready, a Christian. 
that's why we, we, we never want to give people gospel light, right? We don't want to give people diet gospel. We don't want to give people a watered down, uh, simplistic, let's just, you know, reduce it to a 10 second present. We, we never want to do that ultimately because you understand the gospel is built on the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation is built on the doctrine of who Christ is and why he's here and who God is. So, so you, you, can't, you can't look at this and say, well, this isn't important unless I'm going to go be a, a, a theological teacher. No, no, no. This is the heart of who God is. This is the character of God. And it's, it's out of this amazing truth that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's the heart of the gospel. I mean, do you see that? Do you see why? Why, if this is not true, we have no substitute. And if we have no substitute, we die in our sins and, and suffer for it eternally. So th- this is no small doctrine. This is not to be in a book that says theology that's stuffy on a shelf somewhere collecting dust and we pull it out whenever we want to talk. No, no this is the heart of the gospel. Yes. Correct. Yeah, no, I appreciate the balance you're offering there because I, I'm not saying you have to have a degree in theology before you can be saved. And I absolutely agree with that. I, I probably, many of us did not understand this doctrine in all its fullness when we became Christians. Uh, and I appreciate that. What I'm saying is we don't want to push this off as saying, well, that's not something I need to know. When in fact, as, as we grow inspecting our faith more and more as we mature in Christ, we understand that this this is more at the center of our faith than we ever probably realized. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's the idea. Yeah, right. Yep, yep, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, right. No, and I, I yeah, and I appreciate that because I don't want to be misleading in that regard. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. De-deifying? <laughs> Write that down. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's true. And, and you know, uh, two of the fastest-growing religions in the world today, Mormonism and Islam, deny this doctrine. So I absolutely agree with that. Okay, well, let's turn our attention. Now. What I want to talk about today are some of the implications of this. And um, I'm leaning heavily on... Um, 
a professor, I never actually had him, but I've, I've benefited a lot from his teaching, uh, Dr. George Zemick, who used to be at the Master's Seminary years ago. Um, but this, this is sort of based on an outline that he came up with. But, um, but I want to I show you why this is so important. And, okay, I got it, Keith. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, one person. I got that. So what? Okay, so let's try to answer the so what today in terms of thinking about how this is. And I agree with Rich. When you start looking around, you see this doctrine all over the place in Scripture. Okay, The first implication is this. The divine nature as channeled through the kenosis, remember that's the event that brings about the deity and humanity, Jesus the God-man, imparts its power and values to Christ's human nature. What does that mean? Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 5, and let me show you what I mean by that. Luke chapter 5. And have that Bible handy, because we're going we're gonna to have to breeze through a bunch of uh, verses here. But I put a, a number of verses there. If you want to look that up on your own time later on, you can do that. Uh, Luke chapter 5 uh, verse 24. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, my kids will say, Daddy, do we have to do that story again? Um, you, you, you know the story. This, this is where the, the paralytic, he's lying on his bed, and they hear Jesus is in town, and, and oh, yeah, Jesus is in town. Let's, let's take him to see Jesus, and maybe Jesus will heal him. And, uh, of course, they get there, and what happens? The house is full, you know, people coming out the walls, the windows, and they can't get in, right? So they come up with this wonderful plan. They go up on the roof, they pull back the roof, and they drop his pallet down by ropes. And the text tells us, I mean, I'm talking about good positioning. I don't know if they were doing calculations or whatnot, but I mean, right in front of Jesus. I mean, perfect, perfect position. And... Um, Luke chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? No, no one can forgive sin but God alone. Verse 22, But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, now stop right there, how could he do that? He's God. Okay? Now, now we have this thing called intuition, and, and, and some of you think you can read people, and I understand, we'll talk about that later. But, you know, we, we can guess, we can get really good at reading people, but that's not what the text is saying. It says Jesus knew what they were thinking. Because he's God. And in that sense, according to what Dr. N says, he, he is operating out of this sphere. He is operating out of his divinity, a God who is omniscient and knows everything, God who searches hearts. As uh, 1 Samuel says, when they were looking for uh, David, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the, on the heart. Sure. And he says to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And you, Can you see the shock there? How did he know? Which is easier, verse 23, to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say rise and walk? The answer to that question is what? That's the easier thing to say, right? But what's the harder thing to prove? That your sin, well, the harder thing to prove is that your sins are forgiven. You can see a man rise, rise up who's a paralytic. You can see that. If you can't see sin be removed from the heart in forgiveness... So it's the easier thing to say, but it's the harder thing to do. 
But Jesus says, because you can't see that, you can't see a man be forgiven, you can't, you can't investigate that, you can't prove that by putting it under a microscope, I'm going to prove it to you this way. Get up, rise, and go home. And the paralytic gets up, takes his mat, and walks out the door. Can you see, I mean, there was crowds of people, can you see the people just kind of backing off going, as they part ways and as he walks out the door? Okay, because the divine nature, the fact that Jesus is 100% God, gets its power and values to his human nature through this thing called the kenosis. In other words, he can be a man walking the earth and he can actually say to somebody who can't walk, get up and walk, and he does. And more importantly, and that's really the point of this whole story, is he can forgive sin because he's God. And like so many of the miracles that take place in the Gospels, the point of the miracle is not that Jesus came to make the lame walk, although that was part of how they would identify him according to the Old Testament. The point was only God can do that, which means this man standing right here before me must really be... God. Do you see that? But the kenosis allows him to exercise power and nature based on his divinity as he walks the earth as a man. That's what I want you to see, the first implication of the the hypostatic union. There's a second implication I want you to see. By this union, certain human... Well, human, there we go, experiences are made possible because Jesus is the God-man. Certain human experiences are made possible because Jesus is the God-man. Let's look at one of those in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're trying to figure out what are some implications of this hypostatic union. We've said Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, one person. So what, right? What does that mean? Number one, we've seen it allows him to exercise his divine power through the fact that he walked around on the planet as a man. Well, there's another implication. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse at verse 9. But we do not, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That, that sounds like Romans 5, doesn't it? He's coming as the second Adam. He's coming to bear the sins of people. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from the Father, from which, or for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. 
he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now stop right there. If Jesus is going to be our substitute, if he is going to suffer and die and thus defeat death and defeat Satan, he has to take on what two things? According to this verse. Flesh and blood. He's got to be a man. He's got to become like us. Since then, the children share in flesh of blood, in, in flesh and blood. See, look, at, look at it again, verse 14. He himself likewise also partook of the, of the same. Why? There's the purpose clause. So that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, he had to do that to defeat death. He had to do that to stand in our place, to die in our place, and thus defeat death and defeat Satan forever. Now, if he's going to do that, he has to undergo that death, that suffering, that affliction, And so he has to become a man. By that union, certain human experiences are made possible because he's the God-man. What human experiences? Suffering, death, affliction, and we'll talk about a few more in a minute. But again, in order order for Jesus to be our substitute, he has to be a man. Okay? Number three, by this union... It is possible for one person to be the mediator between God and men. Let's turn to a text that I trust all of you know. Just back up a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Yes, ma'am. Um, probably put hypostatic union because that's, that's the broader term. Kenosis refers specifically to the, the emptying that Philippians 2 talks about, that I'm, I'm leaving you on the edge of your seat until next week to, to deal with. First Timothy chapter 2. Um, this is important that we, we hear this, so I'm going to start in verse 3. This is good, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Stop right there. What does God want? He wants all men to be saved. Okay. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, how are they going to do that? Look at verse 5. It's wonderful. A want a verse, kids. You got this? Ready? If I call on you, you know the verse, right? For there is one God and one mediator also between God and and men, the man, Christ Jesus. <laughs> Very carefully put there. Okay, let, let's, let's dissect that a little bit. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Now, now, now understand that the dilemma of the human condition is that there is a God who made us for a relationship, right? We understand that. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created people in his image and likeness to 
be his friend, to have a relationship with him, to be a part of his family, to walk with him in obedience and, and worship and holiness. There, there was supposed to be this, this union between God the creator and the creature. And people would display his glory all over the earth um, by being like him, by praising him, by walking with him. The, the image bearers that radiate his glory all over the planet. And, and people are the pinnacle of that, but you know, the grass does that, the trees do that, animals do that, the, the, the luminaries and the heavens do that. I mean, did you guys see driving home from the airport last night? You have to the west, a beautiful sunset. And to the east, a full moon, or close to a full moon at least. It's like, wow. That's really, and I'm supposed to be driving. I'm like, whoa, look, look kids. You know, you know. It's like, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what creation, including people, is supposed to do. To say, wow, look, look at what a creator we have. Um, I, I've learned a lot about the pancreas in the last eight years. Who came up with that? God did. And you know, as good as our technology is, we do not have a technology, a treatment, a device that does insulin regulation better than that little organ. Because that's the way God made it. But when sin entered the world, what happened to this relationship? What happened to it? There's your separation. Your sins, the prophet tells us, has made a separation between you and your God. You cannot have fellowship. Light doesn't mingle with darkness. Holiness doesn't hang out with unholiness. It can't go together. So we needed, and this, this is what is so important to see, because we are, in a sense, an abomination to God in our sin. We, 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 don't, we don't come to God in His holiness in our filthiness. We don't come to God in His perfection in our sinfulness and our imperfection. We, we can't even approach Him, so we need a what? What do we need? An outside party. A mediator. Someone who comes and says, I want to help to restore this relationship. Now, now watch this. Now, follow the logic of Paul, okay? If a mediator has to come between the two, he has to be perfect because he's dealing with a, a perfect party, a holy party, someone who, who cannot look on sin, as the Scripture tells us. He's got to be God. And yet, he has to experience the realities of the human condition. He has to walk in the manner that men walk. He has to come living, as it were, suffering, dying, living on the planet as a man as well. So the mediator between God and men has to be a man, and he has to be God. Well, where are we going to get someone like that? No one like that exists. So God says, I'm going to make him exist and he sent jesus to the earth in the incarnation in the virgin mary and god and man became one as it were in one person jesus christ and he is the mediator between god and men um, we don't have time to turn there. There's a great passage in Job 9. You need to look this up on your own time. Where, where, where Job's saying, 
God's not a man, so I can't really appeal to him, right? I, you remember because Job's having all these problems with what God is doing and what, what's God doing and why is the suffering and all that? And, and Job wants to go to God and talk to him. He wants to go and appeal to him. And he says, I, I can't do that because I just can't walk into the throne room. God is not a man where I can just go and discuss it with him. And, and, and in a way that probably Job didn't even, didn't, didn't even understand, that, that observation leads to the requirement for the kenosis and the hypostatic union. Because God does have to become a man at some point. Do you see the implications of this? Do you see how much of our faith comes back to this doctrine? Let's look at another one. This union is permanent and everlasting. Uh, yeah, let, let me just prove this to you. Flip to Revelation and we're going to have to speed it up here a little bit. Way too many verses, so little time. But let's just look at Revelation as um, we, we get a scene from heaven. And I've given you several there. Revelation 5.6, Revelation 5.12, Revelation 13.8. They all basically say the same thing. But look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And if you know the context of Revelation, this is where the, um, the, the scroll is taken by Christ. It's a scroll that nobody else can open. John begins to weep because no one is found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 5, Revelation. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6, and John says, I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, he's having this vision of heaven, he looks and he sees the elders, amongst the elders, a lamb standing. Now look at the next phrase. As if slain. We see the same thing in chapter 5, verse 12. We see the same thing in chapter 13, verse 8. Here we are in heaven. Here we are looking at Jesus. We see him and guess what he still bears. The scars on his body. You say, redemption's done, salvation's done. Why does he still need a body? Because from the point of the kenosis on, from the point of the hypostatic union on, he is forever the God-man. He doesn't go back to just being God and not humanity. He is always God in humanity from that point on. Wow, that's pretty cool. The union is permanent and everlasting. I'll just tell you, Zechariah 12 is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, because Zechariah 12 is talking about the, the day of judgment, right? And Jesus comes back to his people. He comes back to the Israelites, the Israelites who have rejected him. You remember that? They had rejected the Messiah. They rejected Christ. And Zechariah says they come back and the Israelites look on him whom they have pierced. And what do they do? They mourn as one mourns for an only son. And the picture is of that great second coming of Christ where the Messiah comes back and the Jews as a corporate entity realize we missed him the first time. This is the Messiah. There's no doubt about it in the second coming. And they see the scars. 
They see the piercings. They see where the nails went. They see what they did in the crucifixion, and they mourn. At the second coming, Jesus still has a body. He's still the God-man, because he's forever 100% God, 100% man, following that. Okay, last thing. The union implies both impeccability and real testing. Impeccability and real testing. What do we mean by that? Impeccability just means this. Jesus, because he, because he was God, could not sin. You agree with me? Does, does God ever sin? No, he doesn't. Okay, And, and we're going to wave our hands at this because I want to I show you uh, the testing verses here. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says what? Someone quote it for me, please. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'll start it for you. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I know we had like the ESV, the NASB, the King James. That was great. It was like a... Like a Smorgas, like a symphony of scripture there. Um, except we didn't harmonize. You don't, you do, that doesn't harmonize very well. He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin. There's no sin in him. James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. There's no, there's no darkness in him. There's no sin in him. He, he dwells, according to Colossians, in inapproachable light. There's no shadow, the scripture says. There, there's no darkness. There, there's nothing in him of any sort of sin or wickedness. And because he is God, he is impeccable. He cannot sin. He cannot sin. Because that's true. Say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. So, so when the devil comes to him and he tests him and he tries to tempt him, is that just a game? Is, is, that, is that just a, a stage play that we kind of all oh, look at that? Of course Jesus is going to win. He's God. Is that how we are to understand that? Nothing could be further than the truth. Because every time the scripture talks about the temptation of Christ, the testing of Christ, the suffering of Christ, his identification with us as one who is, what, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Do you see that? What you've got to understand is this union means because he's God, he cannot sin. But because he's man, that testing is real, that temptation is authentic, that suffering is really felt and experienced, because if that was all a game, he really wouldn't be our substitute. It was real. The scripture tells us the night that he was betrayed, Jesus went and his sweat was like drops of blood because the temptation to give in was so strong. You say, that's kind of hard to understand. Yeah, it's really hard to understand. But it's true. Absolutely true. Jesus couldn't sin, but he experienced real testing, real temptation, real uh, work for us. Just flip back to Hebrews. You guys are all familiar with where he's tempted by the devil. So let's look at Hebrews. That gives some commentary on his temptation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. 
End of the verse. Hebrews chapter 2, end of the chapter, verse 18. For since he himself was what? Tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid to those who are tempted. Now look up for a second. Look up. If Jesus' temptation was a real game, then he can't really relate to us when we're tempted. But the argument of Scripture is that because his temptation was real, because his suffering was real, because his testing was real, when we come to him, he says, yeah, I know what that feels like. So the fact that he could not sin does not take away from the reality of the experience of temptation. And that's the argument of the scriptures here. Because he was tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now flip the page, look over to the right, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now this is a, this is a very, very important verse. If you're not familiar with it, if, if this is not underlined in your Bible, this is a great uh, verse to make note of. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Just because he was God doesn't mean he can't relate. That's why, that's why these guys that got together at Chalcedon made such a big deal about these, these two natures don't intermingle. They're separate and distinct. Because he's, he's experiencing 100% real humanity minus sinfulness, right? But he's experiencing temptation. I, I, I was teaching, what was I teaching? Uh, last, last year I was teaching on um, purity. We're up at uh, a church in, in Fort Worth, a guy conference, talking about purity and pornography and sexual sin and all that. And, and this verse, as I was preparing for that, I remember talking about it. Jesus experienced all forms of temptation, including the temptation to sexual sin. Do you think about the humanity of Jesus in such a way that whatever you struggle with, he struggled with? Do you see that? What are you struggling with today? What what is it? Problem person? Depression? Anger? Um, Hopelessness? Fear? Envy? Anxiety? Jesus experienced it. And he, in a sense, experienced it at a level that is is significant and and full and weighty. Why? Look what it says. We, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. Verse 15, But one who has been tempted, underline it here, okay, in all things as we are. He knows exactly how you feel. When you're tempted. He knows exactly how you feel when, when, when there's that something in you that compels you to do something you know is wrong. And yet, the verse ends by saying, without sin. He experiences the whole of the human experiences. He, he experiences suffering and temptation and need and want and, and testing. And yet he does it without ever giving in to sin. Isn't that amazing? 
He does it by you know, fully feeling the weight of temptation, but he never falls into temptation because he's God and he can't. You say, okay, why? Look at the next verse. Therefore, here's what we're supposed to, here's the takeaway, okay? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Have you ever noticed that when you're tempted in an area, when you're struggling in an area, and you've talked to somebody who's experienced that same struggle and has been victorious, don't you like talking to people like that when you're struggling? Why? Because they can relate to me. They can relate to me experientially and they know how to win. They know how to succeed. They know how to overcome. Well, guess what? That's Jesus. And that's why he says, come to me. Turn to me. Come to that throne of grace in confidence. You say, why in confidence? Because we know, because he's experienced what we've experienced, he's not going to reject us. He's not going to say, why don't you get your act together? Real Christians don't suffer. With... No. He says, you know what? I know exactly what that feels like. I know exactly what you're going through. And in fact, I can give you the assistance you need. I can give you the grace you need to know how to turn from that sin and walk in obedience so that you don't give in. Won't you come to me and receive that mercy and receive that grace? Won't you do that? And you think, how much of our struggle with sin amounts that we're not going to the throne? When it's there, he's there. You say, how can he do that? He can do that because at a time in history, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, became a man. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time in one person. And that initiates the plan of the gospel on earth. Look at the implications. Look at what we have because he is the God-man. Let's go to that throne of grace this week when we're tempted, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this short glimpse of just a little bit of what it means that Jesus is God and man at the same time. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, because he is our sympathetic high priest, that as we're tempted today, as we're tempted this morning, as we're tempted in the next ten minutes, as we're tempted this week, because he is the God-man, might we remember that we have a sympathetic high priest who has experienced the weight of temptation and yet without sin. And he says, come to me and I'll help you. Father, thank you that we have a merciful and gracious God. Uh, Thank you that he stood in our place. Thank you that he bore your wrath. And thank you that all of this was motivated by your love for us in sending Christ. Lord, we love you. And we pray that we would, as a result of our time today, more fully appreciate and apply this, this wonderful doctrine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.